Matthew chapter 5 is where we are. Um, I don't want to be melodramatic or anything, but this is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. There are many most important chapters in the Bible. Some of them complement each other. Some of them give us some new information. But this is one of those chapters that if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, which a Christian by definition would be a follower of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. This is a chapter you want to know. This is a chapter you want to be familiar with. And that's why we are going through this Sermon on the Mount very slow. I think we're into our third month. And today we'll close out the first chapter of a three-chapter message that Jesus is preaching. So I say that to put all this weight and emphasis upon what it is that we're reading. Um, We are just going to begin in, I can't even read that small print. Verse 43 is where we're picking it up today. We'll read through this paragraph. We'll give ourselves, as always, the context that Jesus is communicating from. But at the end, in this conclusion, we're going to pull back and really look at the last chapter from a high-level view so that we're all sitting in this repetitious washing of what Jesus is looking for us as we're talking about the subject matter of repentance, the subject matter of God's kingdom, the subject matter of what it means to follow him. And then again, the ultimate subject matter is where your heart and your relationship with is in his words. Here's his instructions to each one of us as individuals. Here's his instruction to us as a community and as a community that fits in the body of Christ throughout the world. That's the weight that's in this section. So picking up in verse 43 of chapter 5 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that for the purpose you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more? What do you do that's special or exceptional? What do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore... You shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is imperfect. All right, here is what Jesus is quoting from. So this is coming out of Leviticus chapter 19. This command that you shall love your neighbor. But in my translation... When it, it's, anyway, it's quoting this section of Leviticus 19, but there's this, and hate your enemy. For me, it's, again, it's not in quotes because Jesus isn't quoting something out of the Old Testament. What he is quoting is a teaching of the current culture. So the Bible in the Old Testament never gives anybody the command to hate your enemy. 
So in Leviticus 19, I didn't put any of these up on the wall, but you can write this stuff down for notes. Leviticus 19, the broader context says, you shall, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. So in your heart, in your relationship with your brother, your brother is going to be somebody of, of blood, of community, of your, of your country. In context, it's for the nation of Israel and the quote, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. But if there's an issue going on, if your neighbor has sinned in some fashion, if your neighbor has broken covenant with you, they've damaged the relationship with you. If you need to rebuke them and have a conversation, you go and have that conversation, but you don't bear their sin on your own shoulders in your own life because we're to be free in our relationship with God. Not only that, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. When somebody hurts you, it's very often to not say anything, not deal with that hurt, not have a conversation, but become a prisoner in your own mind, in your own heart, and be shackled down, bearing a grudge against somebody that is just breeding high blood pressure and ulcers within your own stomach, damaging your own relationship with the Lord, ends up damaging other relationships in your life. And not only not bearing a grudge, but not seeking retribution, which is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. That is the context where God leads into, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. Now, this whole idea brings up a lot of conversation within a religious community. Hi, Lincoln. Sorry, I just got sidetracked. I was told that you're going to be here anyways. All right. Back to the word of God, people. Um, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the context in the religious conversation gets into, well, who's my neighbor? Who's my brother? Who are the people that I look after and care for? And if somebody is my neighbor, then I need to be able to define that very clearly so I can treat them as my neighbor so that I can obey the law of God. But now you're sitting in this added obligation that's in the culture of Jesus's time. Not only shall you love your neighbor, but you shall hate your enemy. This is, there's this added obligation that religion has brought about in the community. Now, this is a way that religion binds and controls human beings. Basic example in our own culture would be sports. Anybody, have, anybody a sporty fan? Anybody, anybody in the room? Raise your hand. I don't care what it is. Anybody watch college football yesterday? Some saying yes, some saying no. Some said, yeah, I watched it for 12 hours yesterday. <laughs> you have your team. And the whole thing about sports is not only having your team, your team, these are your brothers, these are your sisters, this is your community. They're wearing your colors. These are the people that you relate to. These are the people that you sit in the statistics with and talk about the game with, right? And who's on the next one? And who's trying? You know all of this stuff. You're invested in the sport team. For sports to be successful, not only do you have to have a team that you're in favor of, you also have to have a what? you got to have a team that you hate. 
Because that's part of the sports, right? There's all these, there's the top rivalries within, if it's an individual sports and it's only a player against another player, there's these rivalries that are brought about in the sports networks because that's what drives money. That's what drives, it keeps your heart, it keeps your attention, it keeps you invested in it. Now there's nothing evil with that, but when you sit in sports, can sports become one, an idol, but two, like people do physically, mentally, spiritually hate other human beings who may be for a team that you're against. But that's a way of controlling the population. We see this in politics of the day. Regardless of what your political affiliation is, any government, any political leader in any nation of any time, not only are they going to be promoting their own ideas and what they think ought to be going on within the culture and in the society, but more often than not, they're, they're preaching to you of what you should hate and what you should be against. Because usually what they're for isn't so much that heavy and really what they're for. They're just saying what they're for so that they can remain, that they can keep power over people. But if you want to keep people blind, if you want to keep them in your pocket, you want to keep power over individuals, you give them an enemy. You give them something to focus on, something that you're against. Do not let this happen in your community. Same thing occurs in religion. And this is why religion can be so damaging because you end up blaspheming the name of God. Human beings will attempt to exert power, control, and authority in your life to keep your time, to keep your attention, to keep your dollars, to keep my prestige, to keep the name of Calvary Chapel so that I can have an authority over you and control you. And this is what a lot of people seek in life. And when it comes to religion, it's horrific. But when you sit in multiple denominations over time, I just read an article yesterday. There's you know, over 200 United Methodist congregations just cease being part of the United Methodist Church because of doctrinal issues of people turning away from the word of God and turning towards man's definitions and systems. But these congregations that want to be unhitched from that system, uh, the ultimate issue, a lot of the issue that's going on, it's all the control of, it's the control of doctrine, it's the control of buildings, it's the control of numbers, dollars. That's where all the attention is. The attention isn't on the Lord. So what Jesus is addressing is a cultural issue where the religion has given the people an object of hate. In the culture of Jesus' day, the major object to hate would be the Roman Empire. They are the oppressive culture. They are the oppressive military in the time. So in their culture, you shall love your neighbor. Love your, love your fellow Jews. Everybody else, you hate them. And you do whatever that you can do to undercut these other human beings rather than being salt and being light and shining the truth in regards to who the true and living God is in contrast to the idolatry of the nation of Rome, the culture of Jesus's day is giving them an object to hate rather than keeping an individual's heart and attention on your relationship with the Lord, which this is what it's all about. I've heard it said, and I read this recently, I don't remember the specific context, but that the church places too much emphasis on the idea of love. And this author's argument was love is mentioned 
so rarely in the Gospels. It's mentioned in the letters a little bit, but how much the church communicates the whole idea of God loves you, you need to love one another. This is the image of God in regard, you know, God is love. Uh, we are to love him. We are to love one another. This is uh, central to the first and second commands of the Old Testament, loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, loving your neighbors, yourself. That's uh, going to be brought up in Matthew chapter 22. Here, Jesus is bringing up love. But again, the, the idea of love as a word is kind of silent in the gospel. But its idea is all over the place and central to the nature and character of God and central to what he is calling us to in himself. It is really easy to hate. It's really easy to curse the darkness. It's a very different thing to come into a circumstance with this character that he's leading us through and turning on the light and having kindness and gentleness. And these are the ideas that he's bringing up. In the Old Testament, specifically, those who were teaching the word in Jesus' day that are teaching the Jews to hate their enemy, they're going against the command of God. In Exodus 23, God tells the, peop tells the people, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you're not going to say, watch this, you know, don't, you know, good, good. I'm glad this guy just lost his possession. He says, God says, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. In Proverbs 25, it says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you shall heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. And again, this idea is when, when somebody is against you in a personal relationship, and you return that hatred with kindness and gentleness, there's a conviction that comes out. When you're, when you're bound up in something against someone, and that person responds to you in love and in kindness and in patience and in gentleness. What does it do to your anger? Usually it causes your anger to fizzle really quickly. And you sit in this conviction of, of that emotion of anger that you have let dominate your mind and even your words and your actions in that moment. That's this idea of heaping coals of fire on your head, that conviction that is going to come about. However... There are portions of God's word that talk about the enemies pretty harshly. Psalm 139, if you are not familiar with that psalm, I would encourage you to read it. Its context is God knows you. He has created you. He sees you. He made you in your mother's womb. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. At the end of this, Psalm 139, there's this cry from the psalmist. Again, this is all in poetry. Oh, that you, God, would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. For they, the bloodthirsty men, speak against you, God, wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them... My enemies. 
And then the psalmist ends with this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Again, this section, it would be very easy to be in agreement with, Lord, don't I hate the things that you tell me to hate? Don't I love the things that you tell me to love? And if I don't, search me, seek me out, get rid of anything in my heart that is standing in opposition to you. But Lord, I'm in agreement with you in regards to you, God, clearly have enemies. And do I not hate the ones that you hate? And again, this is sitting in poetry. This is the psalmist working out this emotion. And again, the, the, the attention is on the heart, but to be sought, to be known, to be understood, to be changed and transformed. But you can sit in just these few verses and say to yourself and to God and to the culture, you know, do we not hate the enemies of God? Do we not curse them? Do we not wish the evil that they're doing in this world to come upon their own heads? And again, this language can come out of our mouths as our heart meditates on this hatred really easily. So that's the context of what Jesus is quoting out of in the Old Testament. Again, this ultimate weight being upon this command to love our neighbor. And the definition of neighbor, Jesus is removing the idea of an enemy out of our vocabulary because everybody is your neighbor. And there, you, this is where you have to have a lot of caution, a lot of wisdom, Jesus is not telling us to submit ourselves to evil, to submit yourself to physical harm and put yourself in harm's way. And, um, and again, you could, you could throw this just in the context of what's going on in, in Israel right now in, in regards to a war conflict. Um, what Jesus is bringing about and what he's focusing on is our heart condition. We have to have wisdom and how this plays into a, uh, like a broader war kind of conflict. But that's not the emphasis that he's placing on this. The emphasis that he's placing on this, these are your day-to-day -day relationships. These are people within your own home. These are the neighbors who live next door to you and across the street from you that are part of your HOA within this community. These are your coworkers that you work with. These are the people that you're rubbing shoulders with at the gym, at the grocery store, wherever your life takes you in your daily context. Again, this isn't a wartime scenario. This is in your daily life, in your daily context. Jesus says to you, I say to you, love your enemies. And the, your enemy, a person who is an enemy, this is somebody that's by definition, this is your adversary. This is somebody who is standing in opposition to your will, your wants in life. This is somebody who is speaking evil into your life. This is somebody who's gossiping about you. This is somebody who stands for what you stand against. This is somebody who is going to stand against you and your relationship with Jesus. All of these definitions are feeding into an individual that you would define as your enemy. And Jesus is telling you to look at this person as your neighbor and to love them. And we'll get into that definition in a minute. In my translation, some of yours, again, I'm reading now the New King James. 
Um, for more, a lot of translations leave out the bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you. Uh, most will say, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But in this, again, there's a lot of Greek manuscripts that have this, these additions, probably not part of the original. I'm not going to get into that scholarly kind of debate. But this, this uh, whole idea of blessing those who curse you. Somebody who steps into your life context and curses you is somebody who wishes you harm. Have you, have you ever, in your own mind, out of your mouth even, desired somebody to fall into evil? I hope they get a flat tire. I hope that, Lord, that proud, arrogant individual... Lord, I hope you bring their pride just crashing upon their head and you just humiliate them, Lord. How they've cursed me, how they've trashed me, how they've negatively influenced my life and spoken curses into me. Lord, whatever they've said into my life, not only may that come upon their own head, but I'm praying for 10 times to come upon their head. Now, Lord, destroy them. Anybody? That's, that's our flesh. And this is what a repentant mind looks like. This is what a follower of Jesus looks like. This is the rules and regulation of the kingdom of God. The exact opposite of that. Bless those who curse you. How many of you, and I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands here, in history have ever shaken your fist and cursed God? Leave me alone. You're killing my fun. I don't want anything to do with what you're telling me to do. I want to keep going in the direction that I'm going. There could be a mockery that has escaped your lips in regards to his followers. There's all different ways that this, these cursings, this, uh, this wishing harm, wishing failure to another can escape our own mouths. Rather, again, this, this, what we do in worship, this is blessing God. This is praising him. It's a, it's a eulogy. It's, it's speaking the good things and favorable things and things that cause us to have gratitude and wonder and awe. That's what it means when we bless God. And Jesus' instruction for us is that how we want to speak to God. When you know who he is, you know his nature and his character, you know that he's your creator, you know his love and attention for you, you know the salvation that he's brought you into, you know his light, you know all of this contrast. And the words that want to come out of your mouth in blessing to God, Jesus is saying, let those same words come out of your mouth for those that you define as your enemy. That's what it means to be repentant, to have a change of mind. Because I don't wish evil on any human being. Because I know what that ultimate separation means. If somebody rejects their creator, it's an eternal separation. I don't want that for even the most wicked of souls. I want the most wicked and the darkest and the most defiled and the most corrupt souls in humanity. I want them to know who their savior is. To have that light. So therefore, it's when somebody's coming at you with their negative mouth and their cursing mouth, 
to diffuse that situation, to come back with blessing. And not just out of this rote Christianese, but in genuine in your heart that the words are coming out of your mouth, that they're words of blessing. This idea of doing good to those who hate you as we step into chapter six next week, it's gonna talk about our charitable deeds. So these are our actions. We'll press more into that idea next week. But the idea is, again, not only with your words, but with your actions, uh, live out not uh, opposition to those who detest you, but doing good for them. Prayer, we are going to spend multiple weeks in the Lord's Prayer, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 6. But this whole idea is those who are abusing you, mistreating you, maligning you, hunting you, that your first reaction always ought to be to go and to have a conversation with God. And that's all that prayer is. There is, a, there is a working into your mind, into your heart, and out of, even out of your mouth in conversation with God, the pain that you're feeling, the hurt, the anger. God can help you process through all of those emotions and conversation and prayer that if, as you get up out of that conversation, that you're willing to now speak those words of blessing, that you're now willing to do those actions of good that follow out of a conversation with God. Always. It's, it needs, sometimes we need extended conversation. Sometimes it's just a quick flare prayer in the moment. God, I need your help. Give me the words to speak here to this one who's abusing me, who's mistreating me, who is hunting me. In verse 45, this is getting to the heart of the matter. And it's getting to the heart of the matter of this whole section that you may be sons of your father in heaven. This is, we take this for granted, calling God our father. This is a huge subject, a huge definition in the New Testament. By definition, none of us are the children of God until we come to him in faith through Jesus Christ. And this brings in this whole idea of what it means to be adopted as his child, but Jesus is saying, Here, here's the character. And this, is, this links back to Jesus' baptism in chapter 3. So when Jesus is baptized, when he is fulfilling righteousness in that moment, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him, the power of God, the Spirit of God, the, that, that power and authority in his life that's sending him forth to do his mission, there is this voice of the Father that comes out of heaven that says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That declaration that God gives to Jesus in that moment is the same heart that Jesus is seeking to bring about in us as we follow him, that you would be called a son and daughter of God, just like I am. So this whole idea of what it means to come, follow me. I will make you to be fishers of men. I will teach you about my kingdom. I will transform the way that you think in a way that your very core of your character is going to be transformed by me over time. So much so that the sonship that I have and that I have always had in relationship with the Father 
is also yours. This, what we have read through in this, in what we've read this morning, what we've been reading through this sermon over the past couple of months is bringing about this ultimate conclusion. I want you to be just like me. I want you to be, and I'm giving to you sonship, eternal sonship, eternal relationship with your father, with your creator in heaven. And here's what the character, here's what the actions, here's what the words look like. And then he kind of, in, in, like he's done in prior sections here in his teaching, he strips away any argument that we may have. Don't you know that God brings his son This is his creation. This is his earth. He brings his son up day by day. As this world goes around, his son comes up every single day and gives his gift of light, of warmth, all the effects that we have that are brought about through the sun from food to heat to everything so that we can sit on the beach and enjoy it. Everything in regards to his son and what its purpose is. It shines on evil people and good people. Not children of God and children of God the same every day. The sun that has come up in our community today, we are, as a community, we are each going to enjoy the benefits of today's weather together. It's not just a gift for you. It's a gift for all of us. And not just in this room. But for the how many people that live in Metro Atlanta? Six, seven million people? Are they all good or some of them evil? Same thing with the rain. It's his rain. He sends his rain or he withholds his rain from the righteous and the unrighteous, from the just and from the unjust equally. If God sends, if God withholds rain from a community in judgment for a specific reason, are the righteous of that community caught up in that judgment just as much as the evil of that community? Yeah. We see that throughout the pages of the Old Testament, multiple times where God withholds rain, allows a famine in a community. And in that famine, there is uh, the suffering of the righteous alongside the suffering of the unrighteous in that community. And God brings about his purposes in each one of the souls as they turn to him or as they continue to stand in rebellion against him. And it's one of those things, don't you know that all of the gifts that God gives to all of humanity, he gives to all of humanity equally? regardless if you're defined as good or as evil. And then we get a little bit of flavor of Matthew the evangelist. Don't you know when he brings out this idea of tax collectors, if you love only those who love you, do you think you have a reward? Don't even the tax collectors love other tax collectors? Now this is what's offensive. Tax collectors are the dirtbags of the culture. And Matthew was one of them. Whatever you want, whoever, whatever category of human being you want to say, there's a loser right there, that's tax collectors, that's Matthew. These are men who have sold themselves to Rome. They've sold themselves to Rome for a price so that they can squeeze and milk their countrymen of taxes. 
to get into this position, you're telling Rome, hey, I'm going to bring you a hundred bucks every single day. And Rome says, check, fine, give it to me, knowing that you as a tax collector, you're gonna go and you're gonna earn 200 bucks a day. You're gonna give Rome their 100 and you're gonna keep 100 for yourself. So these tax collectors, they're milking their, their brothers, their neighbors. So in their culture, the religious leaders of the day, as they're pointing the finger of Rome and they're encouraging the population to rebel against Rome, they're also encouraging the children of Israel to hate the tax collectors. And here Jesus is saying, don't you know that even the tax collectors love other tax collectors? So if you only love your family members and you only love those in your community that meet your list of righteousness, whatever your list may look like, don't you know that everybody loves their own, even the tax collectors do it. Then he says, if you only greet your brethren. So if you're walking down the street and you're just smiling and nodding your head out, giving a public greeting to somebody that you defined as a friend, and then the person that's right behind your friend, like, hi, I'm smiling to my friend. There's Tony. And there's Bob. I don't like Bob. Hi, Tony. How are you doing? Great to see you, my brother. And there's Bob. And then you go on down. I mean, that's the attitude that we have as we walk down the street. And Jesus is saying, don't you know that even unbelievers, they greet only their friends. But I'm calling you to be something different. I'm not calling you just to some religious system of rules. I'm calling you to be an imitator and an image of the one whose likeness you were created to be in, whose image was lost because of sin. And because of sin, all of this flesh stuff that we all wrestle with in our minds and our hearts every single day, Jesus is getting to the ultimate conclusion of the sermon. You shall be perfect. And the reason that this idea of perfection, this is maturity. This is complete. This is something that has reached its goal. It's reached its end. Jesus is seeking to bring about this idea of maturity in your likeness to your creator. He's not telling you that you need to be a perfect Christian. Here's the list of steps of A, B, C, and D. Here's Christianity 101, 102. Here's the college. Here's the PhD Christians. Here's the, you know, he's not doing any of that. He's bringing about in each one of us individually an attention to your creator and your creator alone. And that gets into this, this whole conclusion of this section. And not only the conclusion of this sec section, it's getting to even the major conclusions of the Old Testament commands. As, you, as we read uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which is that command to love your neighbors yourself, Leviticus 19 begins with the command, you shall be holy because I am holy, God says. And holiness is this whole idea of separation. So when you are dedicated to the Lord, when you have repented, when you have turned away from what is not God and you have turned to God, often in that dedication, in that holiness, in that separation, in that sanctification, in what's going to be defined as a progression towards maturity and completeness in that relationship, 
often there becomes this whole emphasis upon what you're not. And when you're focused on what you're not, that becomes your big thing. If you're focused on what you're not, usually you're going to be focused on an enemy because what you are not, there is a group of people and individual that is promoting who you used to be, who you don't want to be. Therefore, I don't want that anymore. I'm turning my back to it. I want nothing to do with those people. I want nothing to do with that attitude. I'm, I'm all about Jesus. And you've got the smiley face over here and the frowny face over there. Is that, is that you see that? It's, it's, a, it's a divided heart because that means when I'm engaged with what I don't want anymore, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a, there's a harshness, there's an aggression. And when I focus on the Lord, then it's all rainbows and peace and it's calm and all that kind of stuff. God's bringing about his holiness and his perfection in all of our context. This whole section that Jesus is bringing about it began with in the Beatitudes so the blessings, this is where you are going to be blessed in your life, in your character and relationship with God, poor in spirit, mourning, having grief in your own circumstances and conditions and that in others, being meek and gentle and mild, starving and your mouth just dry because you are longing for righteousness in you and in your community, being merciful, showing compassion, having a purity of heart, being clean in our thoughts psychologically, being peacemakers within all of our relationship contexts, knowing that as we pursue his righteousness, persecution is going to come our way. This is the character that as followers of Jesus, he's looking to cause you to be immaturity in fullness over time. So this chapter, chapter 5, becomes a very basic Christianity 101 instruction. That if you walk out this, the instructions in this chapter, you are going to be thriving in your relationship with God. Because that means that you're not pursuing the opposite of all of these things. You're seeking to be what God has defined you to be already. Through faith in Jesus Christ, I've already mentioned, he's defined you as salt and he's defined you his light. And salt, these are the words that are coming out of your mouth, the flavor, the seasoning of Christ that you're bringing to the conversation. As light, this is focused on your deeds and your actions in, in all of your behavior. And this, again, this is not, oh, I gotta do this. And you may have to wrestle through some of those attitudes, but this is just, it's meant to be freedom and liberty. You get to be you and Jesus. There's no, I don't have a single religious list of rules for you other than may you with all of you, all that you are, seek to love your creator with all of you are, with all that you are. Whether your moment is good or whether your moment is bad. And when you're seeking to love him, that is going to develop a heart and an attitude in words and in behavior that you're going to want to love other human beings. God help us. Because we all frustrate each other. We all rub each other wrong. We all say the wrong words. We all have the wrong expression on our face. Sometimes first impressions need to be overcome with a lot of future actions. 
but he's seeking to bring about not this attention to here's all of these religious rules. Jesus is seeking to, seeking to bring us to a relationship with our creator through him, ultimately through his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. This whole idea of, of righteousness. So in chapter five, verse 20, this whole conversation of this section, he was telling the listeners and he's telling us that our righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees and Sadducees of the day, pointing out that these are the religious leaders of the day that everybody would hold in esteem. Like they're the ones that are the gold star, you know, children of God. And Jesus says, no, breaking us of all of these religious traditions, these religious commands, and causing us as often as we breathe, that we are breathing in the Spirit and we are breathing out the Spirit of God in our life. Not walking in our flesh, but walking in the Spirit. Not walking in our own righteousness through here's our religious rules and here's what it means to be a good boy and a good girl at Calvary Chapel Alpharetta. This is the whole heart of God is you are breathing in and breathing him out in conversation throughout the day. You've already repented. You've already turned. You're calling on him to change your mind every single day. Jesus, I'm following you. My, my attention is on him first. It's all about this upward vertical call towards him. And as we're in relationship with him, he leads us on the horizontal and all of the relationships. Again, in your homes, husbands, wives, parents, children, in this community, we are going to, worship team, come on up. We're going to sit and we're going to have communion together as a family, as a body. This means as often as we gather together, we're remembering Jesus. We're remembering his sacrifice. We're remembering his love, his attention. We're remembering that he died to not just cover our sins, but to remove our sins from us. That as we're remembering that the son was sent and took on this flesh and gave his flesh over for our sins, that that testimony of his resurrection, that testimony of his life is the life that he has given to us. This idea of holding a cup, the cup of the covenant of his blood, this is, this is the law. This is the purpose of the command. And the purpose of the command in the cup that you hold as we participate in communion it's to have a pure heart. It's to have a pure conscience in relationship with him. It's to live out your life in a faith that is, in, that is sincere, that's not hypocritical. Being one thing in this room as we praise God and then being another thing as we step outside the threshold of this environment that we would define as a religious environment. We don't take our religion with us. We are following Jesus. We are seeking for him to cause us to be mature, perfect, holy, and complete. And I do, I, I really do believe that that is a promise for us today. There's, there's a perfect completion. There's a perfect holiness. There's a perfect freedom from sin and ultimate deliverance that we've all been promised. I don't believe that any of us can live in sinless perfection in this life, so don't mishear this idea. But I do believe that we can live in love and in peace and in freedom, unshackled from 
the list of things that people tell me to hate and who people tell me to hate, that I can live my life today with a smile on my face, not in because I'm supposed to, but because I get to. That's what he's calling all of us to do. So uh, take this opportunity to bless your God in communion and in worship. Take this opportunity if you need to, to have God correct your heart in some of your thoughts towards enemies. Take this moment in prayer and pray and bless those who you hate in your heart and your mind right now. It may be somebody who's hurt you. It may be a political opponent. It may, who knows? But take this opportunity to allow your mind and your mouth to be changed and transformed, knowing that as you intentionally do that, God is going to change your heart and he is going to change your behavior. I promise in Jesus. Let's worship.